Yeah. We have uh, what I find interesting, you know, just just as an amateur uh, art critic here, is that okay. you know, one of these gentlemen is wearing a top hat, uh, quite heavy clothing. Looks like he's probably quite cold in this shot, maybe. Or you know, it's well, like a, it's it's not a warm day, but I mean, it's Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the other side, we yeah. have a uh, you know very oh. very well um, built shirtless indigenous man. Right, he doesn't have any kind of top on, does no, he? No, he's He has just, some kind of loin... He has a, yeah, is that a yeah. loincloth? Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, yeah. And so, a necklace. So he's got, like... Yeah. All he's wearing is, like, this uh, necklace. Yeah. He's got his hair tied up uh, at the front, kind of a front bun. He's got this loincloth. And does he... But he does have some kind of breech... Uh, what are those called? Breeches? Yeah. They're, like... But they're not covering... Only covering his... It's interesting. His legs... So, and and the loincloth is covering his yeah. his genitals, and then he's got his breeches, yeah. and he's got moccasins, and then um, down below, uh, McDougal has this bucket. What do you think that bucket is? I have no idea. Huh. I never really noticed the bucket. Yeah. So the thing I noticed, you know, one, shirtlessness, and yeah. then two, no name. Unnamed. The unnamed indigenous shirtless man is really uh-huh. the secondary um, name of this statue to me. Right. And, and right. The fact that it has... That's Edmonton-based journalist Tim Karengesser talking about a statue called the Trader. The statue is on the south side of the Stanley Milner Edmonton Public Library. This library just got a multi-million dollar facelift, and it's... Uh, well, it's had mixed reviews. There's lots of glass, lots of steel. From one angle, I think it looks like one of those huge World War I tanks. You know, the ones with the treads that cover the entire tank? And then just across the street from the library, there's this big mural with the following phrase painted in huge lettering. Take a risk. It's the most Edmonton thing you can do. So... Here we are in front of a sculpture featuring a turn-of-the-century European businessman and an almost naked indigenous man on a very cold day in June on a crumbling plaza behind a gleaming new library. That's Edmonton. It's a city of contradictions and a city where the past is often seen as an inconvenience to progress. But I want to know more about this statue. When I told Tim, who in full disclosure is also a friend, that I wanted to do a history podcast about repressed stories, he told me to check out this statue. And the more I stare at it, the more questions I have. Not just about the nearly naked indigenous man, but about the named traitor, Mr. John Alexander McDougall. And fortunately, I think I found some answers. This episode, I talked to Rob Houle about this statue and what should be done with it. It's a pretty complicated history, and as you'll see, the history of McDougal ends up hitting pretty close to home in ways I really did not expect. This episode, The Traitor. You're listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I'm Russell Cobb, and we're broadcasting from the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 in Edmonton, Treaty 6 territory. Stay right there.
So I'm here with Rob Hool. I'll just have I'll just have you introduce yourself, however however you'd like. Uh, yeah, Rob Hool, Natsika Soon, Wapsusipi, Tandeo Chinia. My name is Rob Hool, and I'm from Swan River First Nation. All right. Um, so I thought we could meet here, do an episode on on this on this statue, because it's sort of hidden in plain sight. I've walked by this a million times, never noticed it until a friend of mine, Tim, was like, "You got to see that statue," and then talk to Rob about it. So I've been reading your pieces, and I thought we could just start by like telling us what you what you see here yeah so what I see is a uh, a classic kind of homage to archaic and outdated perceptions of a indigenous people and B the relationship that was established as kind of colonization and settlements continued westward this statue is the epitome of all those things Interesting. And um, do you want to, there's, we're looking at the first plaque. There's a plaque that's facing west. And um, uh, do, do you want to, do you want to just read the plaque? Sure. Yeah. Uh, presented to the city of Edmonton by Edmund H. McDougall in memory of his father and mother, John, and Lovisa Jane McDougall. And then the, finally, uh, the other plaque, the last plaque uh, is facing to the east. And it says John A. McDougall pioneer trader civic leader and it's got a little sketch of his life here born in oakwood ontario 1854 traded in winnipeg and points west in 1873 arrived in edmonton in 1877 married in ontario returned to edmonton a year later then opened his first store in edmonton in 1879 and became mayor of edmonton in 1897 then became a member of the first university senate in 1908 which is really interesting because my my office is in the senate the senate uh, the old arts where right below me is the senate chamber where the senate would have met so he would have actually been sitting right below my office which is really interesting i've never even noticed never noticed the guy um, and then became a a uh, member of the provincial legislature so an MLA in 1909 and then died in 1928 so kind of like a pivotal figure I guess right uh, I mean think about this like yeah very yeah woven and it's interesting the dates here so 1873 is when treaty number three was signed in uh, the Manitoba kind of southern Manitoba area so obviously he started a mercantile business there then he moves to edmonton in 1877 a year after treaty number six is signed here right so again once you start to line up these dates it seems like he's very much following this industry of treaty and whatever else is being established as westward expansion continues right, right. so it's not by happen chance or anything like that it seems very kind of purposeful in his in his actions right right so he's okay um do you want to do you want to go uh, actually tell me just like what the statue what we see up here like there's two because there's two figures um, presumably John A. McDougall uh, and then another figure so you want to tell me about just talk to me about the other figure what's going on there yeah well first of all this sculpture and statue and the way that it's situated is very daunting right it, it towers over everything else in this Millennium Plaza. It's almost as tall as the kind of first level of the standing, the new Milner. So it's a very encompassing kind of 
presence here in this space. And then you have, like you said, McDougal carrying some sort of blanket of some sort, and then um, a nameless kind of indigenous person who's kind of, and Daniel Francis writes about this, the imaginary Indian. This is very much an imaginary Indian, no shirt, loincloth, um, kind of the, the stereotypical what you would think indigenous people were wearing. And of course, given we're in Alberta and Northern Canada, that seems like a very nonsensical attire given mosquitoes and everything else that would have existed at the time for people to walking around half naked doing trading. It doesn't seem very practical. And given it's June, the last day of June, and we're still cold here. Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't even know, you know, there's maybe a couple weeks, maybe that would be, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so what's, and then they're both holding something. Like, what what, what are they holding? So McDougal has a, a blanket, I would assume. Looks like some sort of probably trading blanket. And then the, the indigenous person has a, a fur of some sort. Could be a wolf or a fairly big pelt so it's definitely not a beaver it looks like more of a wolf kind of pelt he's got also as part of his stereotypical image he's got some sort of claw necklace and a top knot on top with a bone in his hair so again when you look and think of Disney Hollywood Indians this is what you would you would see on screen and this is definitely what the sculptor portrayed and again the trading of a fur for a blanket kind of over-exaggerates the, the mercantile relationship because I don't know if anyone has ever laid under a fur but they're quite warm probably warmer than a blanket so for him to be trading that away for one single blanket or to be talking about it seems kind of again nonsensical and unrealistic <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that but that's interesting yeah that's uh, it's not really a one-for-one one trade um, he's got a bucket at his at his boots do you have any idea what that bucket could be I've never noticed the bucket before, so um, I'm not sure. It could be some sort of maybe carrying money or water, or or it could also be kind of an homage to the um, the fact that, and I talk about this in my article on Secord, a lot of the trading happened with other inebriants present to help make the trading more flexible and fluid. So it could be kind of a an homage to that as well that there's something else happening within this picture that is making the the indigenous person want to give up a fur for a blanket yeah, per se yeah. is there anything in that in the way the indigenous man is attired that does seem represent does anything seem representative of uh, an indigenous community around what we call today edmonton or is it all Hollywood-esque. It looks it it looking at him, looking at his his loincloth and his uh, his moccasins and whatever kind of chaps or something else that he's yeah yeah some sort of breeches or something he's wearing. It doesn't point to any kind of specific community. The top knot is a popular hair culture and usually around plains communities, so maybe more further south. So it it doesn't seem to point to any kind of relationship to people and definitely doesn't speak to any kind of conversation that the the sculptor would have had at the time with an indigenous person to give them a sense of of what they should look like and again this is we're talking about 1977 so um probably didn't really talk to anybody at the time yeah i mean it something about the statue to me looks like 
it should be from the early, early 20th century, but to think that it's from the 70s, mm-hmm. um, by that point, everyone's familiar with the stereotypical images from a, from a Western. It just seems like it's more of a reflection of that sort of media Hollywood than anything uh, historically accurate. Um, you want to go ha- like have a seat? Just have a seat here. So we yeah. have a, yeah. I feel like my neck is kind of my, my neck's kind of bent out of shape staring at this guy. Because like you said, it's yeah. so it's really uh, the pedestal is about probably my height, about six feet, and so to really look at it. You got to stand back quite a ways. Like right now, we're about maybe 50 feet from it, and you see that it's really impressive. And I, I, I it's just crazy that like I just haven't noticed it. How did you? How did you first become aware of this statue? Yeah. So um, through my post-secondary education and doing stuff at the U of A, and then and working for the city um, for a time just becoming aware of what the the Edmonton Arts Council who's responsible for looking after all the kind of the public art in the city um, their inventory um, what they're they're in charge of and and having these kind of conversations about statues like this and I think it it also came up kind of around um, the Frank Oliver conversation that happened a number of years ago because a lot of these things um, there's more than one example of this kind of image and, and statue in the city of Edmonton because of our connection to Hudson Bay and whatever else. And of course, my article on Richard Secord and Métis Scrip and the fact that Richard Secord and John McDougall were partners and, and ran their uh, mercantile together um, brought me to this statue as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, can you... Like you alluded to the fact that he's kind of a pivotal figure in Treaty 3 and then Treaty 6. What else can you tell us about about the man, John A. McDougall? Yeah, so John A. McDougall, um, again, like many other kind of prominent people at the time, built kind of this empire and this stature on business and in most times a very lucrative and one-sided business with indigenous people. Um, his business, McDougal Secord Limited, and then they became kind of a, a banking body as well for a while, um, were directly responsible for managing the goods going in and out to indigenous people uh, from Edmonton. So they had contracts with the government that would be direct billing them for um, flour and some of the other implements promised through treaty. So then they would be kind of playing the middleman in that entire role. Yeah, so, and I'm doing other additional research on kind of Indian monies and, and where they go. And it's also interesting to see that a lot of that business and and trade at the very beginning of the relationship was done with kind of indigenous communities own money so it even though the government and the crown understood that they had obligations they weren't upholding them because they were using our own money to buy things that they promised to buy for us so it, it gets even more convoluted in that sense but again building a very lucrative empire becoming one of the first mayors if not the first mayor of Edmonton becoming the first millionaire teachers as I as I quote in my article him in Secord um, and and the fact that no kind of questions are asked about all this this business dealings and and very very similar to people like 
Mr. Frank Oliver, who became millionaires based upon swindling and and just lowballing and ripping off indigenous people, these guys, McDougal and Secord, would fall into that same category. This is History X, the show about the history they didn't teach you in school. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. If you're interested in true stories involving crime, corruption, and mistaken identity, please be sure to check out my book, The Great Oklahoma Swindle, Race, Religion, and Lies in America's Weirdest State, from Bison Books. When I read your article and I saw that phrase, uh, first millionaire teachers, I was just kind of shocked because I don't know any millionaire teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like you don't think about uh, teaching as being a profession that you're going to make a lot of money. How did that happen? How did they, in what sense was he a teacher and how did he use that to make money? Well, I think back in the very beginning of this this kind of settlement in town, um, the kind of formal teachers were probably in short supply. So then they, once the, the bludgeoning, burgeoning kind of Edmonton school system started to develop, people like McDougal and Secord would be brought on to help teach the kids in, in some way, shape, or form. And because they were respected individuals in the community, they would be welcomed even even further. So then to combine that with the way that they're doing their mercantile business and trade, then moving into kind of land dealings once the, the script system really starts to take off, um, it's these very conflicting perspectives and images of that they're portraying. Here they are, they're teaching, they're teaching younger generations, and then at the same time, kind of dismantling and dis- disowning kind of indigenous people of their territory and their generations. It's this real conflict of what Canada has come to represent and come to be. And then on top of that, just building that, that wealth, right? And, and they were celebrated in newspaper articles and things like that as the millionaire teachers. And the fact that no one at the time bothered to bat an eye or even question what was going on. And it, it speaks to maybe another undercurrent of people knowing exactly what's going on, but no one talking about it because it's Canada's dirty little secret that all this money and wealth has to come from somewhere. Um, you talked about this about script. Is there is there like an easy way we could understand that? I know it's pretty complicated, but yeah. Um, yeah. So as as part of the kind of treaty negotiations, um, both indigenous and non-indigenous people realized that there was a party to the treaty that needed some special obligations as well, and that were our Métis brothers and sisters. So the government, what they did is they established a system where taking the similar provisions from treaty, 160 acres per person, then tra- then applying that to Métis people because they had um, connections to kind of First Nations communities. So they created this entire system on land grants that, that became, and people like Frank Tuff talk about it, that it, it the government created it purposely for uh, a way, a mechanism for their friends and people who were friendly to the government to access lands for bottom barrel prices and and most of the time it was done through a dollar an acre kind of approach so what people would get is you get your 160 dollar your 160 acre certificate and people like McDougal and Secord would buy that from you for its value 160 dollars and then be granted that land wherever they chose as long as it's within the Métis territory stipulated. 
So the so the the, the certificate for land could be decided. Would it was it decided by the the person who received the script or by the government or some combination? By the usually by the person who received the script. So they would select a parcel. They would go out and and do some land prospecting, and then they would find the parcels that they were looking for. They that they wanted, and then they would use that script certificate, getting people to sign it over after they purchase it, because you couldn't do you can do unilateral. But again, McDougal and Secor they found ways around that. So they would hire people to impersonate the script certificate holders. They would have them sign over the documentation. It's a long-standing practice in the script community, and and especially the vendors and the the land prospectors like McDougal and Secor they would make this a regular practice. And in my article, I highlight one of those instances where you have a young lady that had a certificate, gave it to these guys. They then uh, never explained to her exactly what was going to happen. They had someone impersonate her to get this land. And then it, it eventually settled out of court for, I think it was $500 or something like that when the land was worth five times that, right? So I decided to take a closer look at John A. McDougall and Richard Secord. And what I found was that these two men were not just millionaires. They were the most influential and richest men in town. Their original store, called McDougall and Secord, were at the center of everything in Edmonton. The store sold everything from harnesses to hats to toys to groceries. They played a small role in enticing people on the Klondike gold rush, offering to equip them, knowing that much of the wealth was not really there. But then the real money, then as now, was in development and in real estate. And so early in the 20th century, McDougal and Secord got in the business of city development. They lent money for new businesses, for new housing. They got in the mortgage game. John McDougal later said, quote, We were all in business and realized that it was the settlement of the country by a good class of industrious farmers that that would do more than anything else to build up the town. And McDougal went and organized the Edmonton Light and Power Company, giving Edmonton its first electric light system in 1891. Now, by 1909, McDougal and Secord, with their loan operation, it was actually the richest in all of Alberta, not just Edmonton. And British investment was also flowing into Alberta, with the first boom well underway. Now, Rob at the Trader Statue was pointing me to a different history. What he was essentially saying was that the foundation for all of this money, for this entire development, well, that was all based on shady land deals that happened with Métis people and their script. It took me a while to understand how all this happened, but then I found an article by Dr. Frank Tuff at the University of Alberta. It broke it all down. Now, in theory, the whole operation was supposed to be simple. In exchange for extinguishing Métis title, individual Métis people got this paper, scrip, that could be exchanged for 240 acres of land or money to buy land. The scrip holder just had to go to a Dominion Lands office and fill out a bunch of paperwork. 
Now the Dominion land offices were scattered throughout the prairies, and sometimes there was more than 800 kilometers in between them. And land developers knew Métis people would be coming to the land offices, and they did everything in their power to get legal title to that land. Millions of acres of prime farmland and future urban development was at stake. And in some cases, land developers paid off impersonators to get the script, then sign it over to the then sign it over to the developer for a small fee. Sometimes deals were made under the influence of alcohol. Sometimes physical threats were made. Now, even if the applicant made it past all the paperwork, the double dealings and harassment, they would have to wait years to receive the actual title to the land. And in one case, a Métis woman waited eight years to receive her title, only to then sign it over to a speculator. And this case is not an outlier. In a study of Métis applications for scrip and Lac La Biche, out of 751 total applications, one person actually ended up with a patent to a piece of land. One. Now, what does all this have to do with our statue? Well, remember, McDougal and Secord, it was the biggest company in the game. They cashed in big time on Métis script. There's no doubt about it. McDougal's partner, Richard Secord, now he was caught facilitating a forgery for Métis script in 1921. And this one appeared to be a clear violation of the criminal code. It was forgery. So with the help of Senator James Lougheed, the law was changed. A three-year statute of limitations was enacted, and that would protect all of those who had swindled the land earlier in the 20th century from ever facing prosecution. So we're, we're standing here in this new, gleaming new uh, library, which should open anytime soon if it's not open already. And um, I know this statue has been discussed. It is kind of a, a, a point of contention. Um, what, do you, what, do you think, what do you think should be done about it? What, what should happen with this statue? Well, again, it's about um, a lot of different things. With all that's happening in, in this country and countries to the south around removing these archaic representations of, of times past that only seek to kind of exert their dominance and when you look at this statue specifically it, that's what it's doing in this kind of Millennium Plaza is exerting its dominance over the surroundings because you can't help but have your eyes drawn to it you get closer to it it's very enormous so things like this because they're serving that purpose I think should be kind of removed and taken down and rethought of um, placed in a museum somewhere with a more accurate telling of exactly what this relationship is, what it means. Statues like this and, and history like this doesn't appeal to indigenous people because it's, it's whitewashing a very important part of their history and then telling a totally different story than the way that we understand it. Hey everybody, it's Russ one more time. 
Well, the city of Edmonton has decided that in its redevelopment of Centennial Plaza, that the Trader statue will no longer be there. Uh, the Centennial Plaza will be, quote, more attractive, welcoming, and accessible for all residents, and that the Trader no longer fits the design of the newly imagined space, so it's going to be removed. In fact, probably by the time you hear this, it has already been removed. And the city is examining a new policy for the removal of sculptures and monuments deemed no longer culturally or socially appropriate. I know that's a difficult discussion and one that, hey, History X may be a part of. Well, that's our show for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening to History X on the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 FM. History X is the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. It's been a pleasure talking to Rob Houle, whose research on John A. McDougall and Richard Secord was sort of the foundation for this episode. Also, special thanks to Tim Karengesser for talking to me and alerting me to the statue, which apparently is no longer there. And, and thank you to you for tuning in. You've been listening to History X, where the past isn't dead, it's not even past. <laughs>